Hi, everyone. Just before we get started with this podcast episode, um, I've got a word from our sponsor, the Toronto School of Management's NCA exam prep program. So you can follow the, the TSOM NCA prep program on Facebook if you just search TSOM NCA program. What they're doing now is they're coming out with a lot of new materials. And in particular, they're coming out with sort of a new way of approaching exam strategy preparation. So on March 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, the Toronto School of Management's NCA exam strategy and sample paper live session will be taking place. For people who are studying in small groups or for people who have um, been self-studying or even for people who have had the experience of tutoring with other great other great mentors and other great teachers out there. If you're looking for a little bit of extra help or looking to shore up some questions that you might have, uh, the session is $60 and it's hosted by Amadeo Clevio. Um, Amadeo obtained his JD from Osgoode Hall Law School and is the owner of Clevio Law Professional Corporation. I'll be there as well to moderate the session. So to make sure that all of your questions are answered, um, you can submit questions prior to the session to have it be a little bit more structured by emailing ncaprep at torontosom.ca. And also, if you're interested in registering for the event, again, it's $60 Canadian. There's no taxes included there. Um, and you can either DM me personally and I can connect you with the right people within the Toronto School of Management organization, or you're able to email ncaprep at torontosom.ca. Welcome to A Shot of Life, a podcast aimed at highlighting the personal journeys of professionals and entrepreneurs in Canada, taking a snapshot of the person behind their professional title. This is episode 28. Our 28th guest is Kim Gale. Kim is a pioneer in the legal community and is an advocate for diversity and inclusion in the field of law. She had envisioned becoming a barrister from a young age as she enjoys solving problems and negotiating. In 2015, Kim graduated from City University of London and worked as a paralegal at a Bay Street firm equivalent in the UK. She returned to Toronto and completed her equivalency exams, barrister and solicitor exams in Ontario, and articled with an estate litigator. In January 2018, Kim was called to the bar and launched Law for Millennials and NCA Network while working at a boutique estate litigation firm. In January 2019, Kim launched Gale Law. Kim is founder of Legal Blog Law for Millennials, Diversity and Inclusion Group NCA Network, and law firm Gale Law. Hi, Kim. Hi, Anton. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for agreeing to be on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting interesting time for for lawyers, but particularly internationally trained lawyers now with with so many organizations out there. And I think LinkedIn's really helped. It's helped me anyway, and it helped me, you know, in my professional network, but also in building my network for this podcast. And I reached out to you, Kim, because I know how active you are in the internationally trained space. 
Um, and so I'm really thankful that you're able to be on today because I know you've got a lot of insights and experience yourself in being involved in the internationally trained lawyer sphere. Yeah, definitely. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the more networking we can do, even now it's all virtual, um, you know, the better we are because we can, we should still be connecting with people and um, sharing information. Um, and I, I do that through my group NC network and there are other, you know, ways to do that. This podcast is an excellent medium and I think it's fantastic that we can just keep those lines of communication open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we'll sort of get into this conversation. Um, And I think some of the listeners I've heard feedback from don't read the bios on the podcast info page. Um, of the guests, they like to play a game with themselves and try to guess where the guest is from, from their accent. Um, Because I've had people from Australia, from England, from Nigeria, India, Pakistan, all over the world, really. And I I don't think it would be too, too much to assume that Kim, you're from Canada. Yes, yeah, I'm from Toronto. Right. So I think it would be great to maybe start from the beginning. Um, And Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to want to practice law and how you sort of navigated your way down the path of wanting to practice law abroad. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, it's an it's a story that I think uh, probably a lot of students share. I, uh, I graduated from Western. I was doing shipping and logistics and I did a media um, program. So I was in the MIT program and I thought, mm, I, sh- I kind of wanted to do marketing. So then mm. I flipped, moved back to Toronto. This is working in London, Ontario, did some, did marketing. And I thought, mm, I don't know if I really enjoy this. And my mm-hmm. mom's actually a lawyer. Um, so definitely having her as a role model is a huge influence in kind of what I see as a female lawyer. And I was already working and I just thought, I had a friend actually who went to law school in uh, London, England. And I definitely followed her story and kind of kept in touch with her. And I was always very jealous I thought, oh, if I could do that, it would be so amazing. Mm -hmm. And I was very much sick of Toronto, you know, being from here. I just thought I really wanted to get away. And, you know, who knows what the future will hold. It was a very exciting concept to me. I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, if I love it there, then I I just stay there. (laughs) So I applied while I was working, thinking, you know, what it's pretty low risk. If I get in, I can decide whether to go. And if I don't get in, then decision made. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought I would get in. I mean, my grades were good and I had a good um, foundation, but I was, you know, you never know when you kind of you go on a limb. Mm-hmm. And when I got in, I thought, okay, I, I still hadn't actually spread the word. I hadn't really told many people I was applying and doing this because I just thought that makes it into a bigger deal. So I actually hadn't really told my parents. I just kind of did it on my own. And when I got in, I was like, oh, okay, I should probably decide what I'm doing or what, what, what future holds in store for me. And that's when I remember vividly, I was on a vacation with my parents. We were in like some tropical place and I just like, I reflected and I thought about what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, I really did. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I just never thought, I didn't know how I would get there. Mm -hmm. So I was excited and I told my parents and they, 
they were they were supportive in the end, but they were very much like, oh, this is this feels kind of random, you know. You didn't really yeah. tell us about your kind of journey. And then when I went, I um, I found living on my own abroad actually to be much more difficult than a lot of like every student's experience is very different. But I mm-hmm. found law school to be extremely hard. It's you're it's very arduous you're studying every day I was away from my family and my friends Mm -hmm. um but luckily I did meet my now husband so he's British we met um he he's not a lawyer but we met while I met him while living in London Mm -hmm. and then after I graduated law school I was I was sponsoring him and we had to live together for a certain amount of time I also had to write the NCA exams and I was thinking should I, I should stay here and start working as a lawyer. So I worked as a paralegal at Norton Rose for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then that was satisfied the requirement of Darren and I living together, my, my now husband. And then I finished my NCA exams while working there. So I was kind of like, and sponsored him. So I was trying to kind of make my exit strategy to come back to Toronto. And we moved back to Toronto in 2016. Um, both of us had no jobs. So I left my job and he left his job and we came to Toronto, lived in my parents' basement. And then I started articling. He applied um, for positions and just slowly but surely we started kind of rebuilding our life here. And, um, you know, I think we're like coming on five years of living back in Toronto and we're both very happy in our careers. And it was a really, like, it was a big leap of faith to kind of, I know a lot of NCA students are who are immigrating here or who have made connections when they go abroad and they're coming back and starting fresh. It's really hard because you don't know anybody. Mm-hmm. You, um, you know, your finances aren't secure and you're just t- kind of trying to like reach out to anybody or get as much information as you can. And I definitely found that if I had the right tools and the right information, I think that journey would have been a lot easier for me, but I was definitely like grasping at straws, doing my own research. There wasn't much information um, around that time, around 2015, Mm -hmm. regarding the NCA process, um, regarding, you know, writing them in London. I did definitely felt like I could have saved a lot of time um, and, you know, maybe made some friends, the friends that I have made while I was sitting for the bar exam, because, you know, you're off cycle. Um, they've just been so supportive. And I just, I, the people I have spoken to has been such a positive experience. So I wanted to kind of share that with the community and build something in Toronto for people to have, um, pre COVID, we did a lot of events, um, you know, in person, we did pub nights, we did um, a lot of information sessions, and now we've moved everything online. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, I, our members are still getting really good value out of the uh, out of the events that we're organizing. And um, it's been it's been very rewarding to give back, definitely. Yeah, well, so that's that's the that's the spiel. That's the spiel. <laughs> <laughs> that's that was great. I didn't even have to jump in and ask one question. You. That's like I kind of lived lived through your experience, and so you you studied law in London, um, and just before we get on to sort of what the what your organization is all about, the NCA network. I also studied law in London in the UK, and very for very similar reasons. First of all, kind of not too happy with the direction I was or the the place I was in now. You know, the work I was doing and. 
I did an undergrad in history of religions at U of T. <laughs> and so I kind of did something that I thought I would be interested in. Um, but then at the end of it, sort of thinking, what am I going to do? And I think a lot of people kind of run into that issue. Um, so yeah, I decided to go to London and I found the experience, like you said, um, it, it is harder than you would anticipate given, you know, London, it's a pretty cosmopolitan city. They speak English, but it's like, it's also very different. Um, and you have to get used to being a bit of an outsider at first. And I'm curious, you have this kind of, obviously you've got this entrepreneurial spirit, um, and we'll talk about, you know, Gail Law and, and the NCA network and how you started that. Did you, and you talked also about how um, studious you had to be in London and how difficult that was to, to continuously study and, and you found law school difficult, which I think most people do. Um, did you think about networking? Were you exposed to networking or professional development while you're in law school? Yes. And I think that's a very, uh, I agree with all of your points. Um, you know, you, you do feel like a bit of a fish out of water when you mm. go to a different place that you just uh, are, haven't, you know, I travel a lot, but traveling is very different than living yeah. in a different city. Yeah. And uh, yes, I networked. I, I think a, f a lot of students would resonate with the fact that I was applying for jobs since the first day of law school. I was yeah. reaching out to recruiters in London and Toronto. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe that's how I was able to get my position at Norton Rose because actually what happened was I applied for their training contract position, which is similar to articling. It's different, it's longer, it's a different process, but uh, it's the same concept that after you do your law degree, some train uh, experiential training is required in London mm -hmm. or in the UK, they call it a training contract. And I, I, the only, I think the, my foot in the door was that they had this open day, which is mm -hmm. a very UK thing. You go kind of similar to Toronto's office tours that they used to offer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I met the recruiter there and then I entered one of their contests on Facebook I went around made my friends all like the post and then <laughs> she said uh, there's like a swag bag that you want um, and I said let's meet for coffee and I'll pick up the swag bag and I chatted her up on coffee and I said look I'm really interested in working at your firm and then they sent me a rejection essentially letter saying you know sorry you didn't get the, the training contract but uh, feel free to reach us uh, contact us for feedback Mm -hmm. I was really, I, I was really injured. It was, I had to lick my wounds for a while. And then, like I, almost about a month went by, but I had a colleague that I also reached out to and he was a little bit like a mentor. He was a, a lawyer from Dublin and he was just such a nice person. And I reached out to him and I, I was sort of really crossroads. And I said, look, I'm, I'm here for a year. I would like to work. Um, I had a recruiter finding me some positions that just weren't really law related they were kind of you know it was, it was like a filler position I said I really want to be at a law firm and get that experience and he said reach out for feedback you know mm. maybe there's something that you're missing that will help you or when you reach out to feedback tell them that you're interested and we're still working for them in a different capacity mm -hmm. and I said okay fine so I reached out and on the phone I said look I'm like I understand my application maybe wasn't what you were looking for I also found it was difficult to sell myself in both 
both jurisdictions. It was hard to sell myself in London because they didn't really understand my background. You know, they don't know Western. They don't know uh, a lot of the experience I had. And then it's hard to sell myself in Toronto because they didn't really understand the UK process. They didn't really understand the NCA process. So it became, I became not as marketable in almost both air, both locations that I was really looking at. Mm. Uh, and that was, a, that's a hurdle in and of itself that, you know, I'm, I, I really felt like that mentorship that that one lawyer in particular provided to me was so helpful. So I went back and I said, um, look, I'm interested in still working for your firm. I see there's a paralegal position open. And they said, okay, send your resume. So I said, okay, great. Send my resume. And uh, they called me for an interview. And that was the only interview I ever got in two <laughs> years of applying for jobs. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you know, I was actually going out that night uh, for a friend's birthday. And I, I didn't, I didn't like I regularly went out in London. So that was, that mm-hmm. was planned for weeks. And I thought, should I go? Should I not go? And I just thought, you know, I'll go, I'll come home early. Uh, like there's no point stressing over it. I've researched the firm already. I right. know what to say. And I, another circumstance that was kind of um, everything it's coincidental slash, you know, fate, depending on, on how your perspective, but mm-hmm. at the front steps of the door, and just to show another point of how important networking, I, I met this uh, other Canadian lawyer, he was a training, he was a trainee training at the firm. And I met him while doing my, you know, day office days and whatever. And I followed him on LinkedIn and I reached out to him and he's like, Oh, Kim, hi. And I said, hi, I'm here to interview for a real position. And he said, Oh, I know who's interviewing you. This is what he's going to ask you. He's mm. going to ask you certain questions. Like, would you rather be a coach of a really bad team or on a really good team with a bad coach. And, and he's like, and this is how you, this is what you should say. So he was giving me pointers so that when I actually went to the interview, I was quite prepared. I knew what I knew kind of how to navigate those like tricky, you know, interview questions that are supposed to throw you off guard Mm. and I got the job. So a lot of that story really is like leaning on other individuals uh, knowledge and it really made me realize that if you don't have those connections and you haven't reached out it's so much harder to get those positions yeah absolutely i think it's sort of an underlying theme or ethos of this podcast is that no matter what the journey is and like you're describing your you know your struggles for employment in the uk and there are a lot of internationally trained lawyers listening to this who are looking for employment in canada and i think The principle is true for both in that networking is so important, not being afraid to reach out to others, not being afraid to ask for help and um, putting yourself out there, you know, like getting your friends to like that Facebook page, um, suggesting that you go and meet somebody for coffee to pick up the swag bag. That's a nice little sort of strategic move on your part. Um, All of these things, while in, in an individual vacuum, may not you know, make the big, give you the big break that you're after. They all kind of, they're all sort of building blocks or Lego pieces to the top of what you're looking to do, what you're aspiring to do, which is, you know, practice as a lawyer or get employed. 
Yeah, I really think that's true. And I, I, I think it's so important to think in, in reaching out to somebody isn't give me a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and I talk to a lot of students and we only, I mean, we're uh, at Gail Law, my firm, we're quite a small team. It's my, it's my assistant, Jessica, and then my associate, Malvin. But even how I've hired most of my students, and my Malvin in particular, he started doing um, legal research because I had a, I had one matter that required research and I just he was looking for he was looking for an associate position but at the time I was kind of you know it was COVID and I just had a lot of time and I thought hey you know you're you want to uh provide like I'll pay you your for your time but all I need right now is a research memo he did Mm -hmm. the research memo I was like wow that was really good do you want to do another research memo he did the other one and then this file blew up and I thought do you want a job so yeah (laughs) you just never know how things and if he wasn't willing to do the first task or the second task, you know, he might not have made it to the third task. Right. Yeah. No, it's such a good lesson for people who are who are struggling to find that employment. It's that there may be something that you're that you you think is sort of beneath you or something that you, you figure would get in the way of your goal of getting that associate position or even getting that articling position. If a lawyer says, hey, I need somebody two times a week um, on a volunteer basis. I would say take that up and and continue. And at the very least, it adds to your experience that you can utilize in in reaching out to another lawyer or another firm and, and you can draw on the experience you had from the past um, volunteering. So great. Uh, Kim, I think what I, I I'm interested. I'm, I'm we're gonna continue, but I wanted to just press a pause and just maybe a couple one particular rapid fire question. You lived in London, um, and there will be people listening to this podcast wanting to study abroad from Canada. Um, how? And I, I can I've shared my experience in doing it, but um, it would be interested to get your feedback on it. When you get accepted to a law school in London, it's you know you get excited and you think about sitting in the classroom and studying law, but then there comes all of this extra stuff that you have to figure out, like where am I going to live? Because London, particularly in the city is not like any other real city or university type atmosphere. Like you said, you went to Western. Western's a campus type environment. Whereas in London, it's kind of fragmented. All the buildings have been there for hundreds of years (laughs) and they're repurposed. Um, But that means that residence living is a little bit fragmented too. Like you can stay on res at a London university, but where is the residence? Or you can stay at an affiliate or a private student resident. So I'm interested, how did you go about finding accommodation? That's a very good question. Honestly, I was very poor and London was very expensive. And uh, having, I mean, like most students, you graduate from undergrad, you, I worked for a couple of years, but um, you tried to save as much as I could. And my, you know, my budget was very skint. So I did look into residence and it was a little out of my price range. So I actually went on spareroom.co.uk and I found a room uh, and the, uh, you know, the girl renting the room seemed very nice. I reached Mm -hmm. out to the landlord. I put a deposit down. Uh, The thing they don't tell you in London uh, is that if you're moving to the UK uh, and I can speak to this because a lot of my friends have the same experience. You don't have a guarantor because you're not from the country. They actually require you to pay your entire year up front. Right. A lot of my friends had to do that. Um, 
but I said, I'm not paying me, I'm not sending some person abroad and, you know, a huge sum of money. So I, I spoke to her, you know, there's a negotiation. I can't, I'm a lawyer at heart, you know, I got to negotiate. So I spoke to her, I said, look, I'll pay you like the 300 pounds for the, uh, for the two weeks. I think my rent was 150 pounds a week. It was, yeah. which, which is, uh, actually a lot, but actually yeah. pretty cheap as well. So <laughs> depending yep. on how you look at it as, and I said, I'll send you, I'll send you like two weeks worth or whatever it was. Uh, but then, and then when I get there, I want to look at it. I want to meet you. And then I'll, and then I'll send you the money right away. Once I'm there, I'll send you the, the whole, the whole year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just don't feel comfortable sending it to you now. So she agreed. So we went, uh, I did move in. I met with her. I sent her the money. I lived there for the whole year. Uh, and then uh, I actually second year f- for about four months, I lived in the student halls and that was fantastic. I loved it, yeah. but I really was strapped for cash. And I just thought if I can move and they can refund me some of this money, then me and Darren could live together. We'll live a bit further out of London, but I can save some money. And that's what we ended up doing. So, you know, I think it's very malleable, like it's depending on your circumstances. Um, It's not that you, even though you pay the whole year up front, you can maybe negotiate getting, you know, if you have to move or whatever, um, you kind of figure it out. It's kind of like life, right? You're once you're living there, you might not, you might think this is, this is so great for me and it's affordable, but then circumstances might change or you might meet somebody, you might want to live with them. So I would just say, do your research and go with kind of your gut. If something feels scammy or wrong, don't do it. Yeah. Um, if it feels right, then go for it. And you always have time when you get there. So you could always get there, live with a friend or stay in a hotel or stay in a hostel and then try to find a place. There's tons of places. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a huge city, but definitely living near the campus for those four months were amazing. And I lived close kind of in first year. Then we moved a little bit further to North London. Right. And I was about an hour and a half from <laughs> this, from the, uh, from the university. And I thought, Oh, never again. I want, so that's kind of changed my whole mantra, even living in Toronto and a lot of my friends now during COVID are moving to the suburbs. Yeah. I just thought, no, I did that commute. I don't want to do it again. Yeah. So for me, it's important to live close to kind of the action, I guess you could say. Yeah. The action. And also, like you said, at the beginning of our conversation, studying in law school is hard. And if you can eliminate you know, the anxiety of, of commuting. Sometimes, if you know, you're worried about being late, this and that. I remember um, I lived pretty close to campus. I was lucky. I was like 20 minute walk away. Um, so that was great. Um, but one time, I think there was a tube strike in London on the day of an exam. Oh. And so, and they weren't going to, like they said, look, this tube strike was scheduled. So figure it out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the exam was at a different campus further away. So I couldn't really walk there and I got in a cab and then I had to get out of the cab and basically run to the exam because it was just not untenable. The traffic was crazy because the the transportation wasn't working. Anyway, all that being said, the point of all of it is um, eliminating those stresses or potential hiccups on the way of commuting. And it's just kind of, you know, it takes time out of your day and I agree with you. I think if you can be close to where you're working or close to where you're going to school, 
um, that would be ideal. But obviously, be London being what it is, it's sometimes not possible. So it's good to also know that you can live further afield and the transportation links are such that you can get to where you need to get to. It's not too bad. Exactly, exactly. I, I echo that completely. If you can, if you can eliminate any, uh, a lot of the times if there was a tube strike or whatever, you would stay with a friend who lives close by, right. or you would just plan ahead and leave a lot earlier. So yeah, I mean, you live there. That's the difference. It sounds like, oh, we're going abroad, it's going to be fantastic. But really, yeah. it's it's exciting for the first few weeks and then it yeah. kind of just becomes life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're confronted with the fact that, Oh, this is, you know, you, you become very English and Londony uh, with the rain and all this <laughs> stuff pretty quickly. You find yourself becoming a resident, um, but it's a really great experience. And, and like, we'll sort of, sort of leave it there, but for people who are interested, obviously in, in attending law school abroad, and if they're thinking about London, um, you can reach out to Kim. I'll leave Kim. I'll leave your details, sort of a LinkedIn um, link in the uh, yeah, dis- description sure. of the podcast. Because there's, I mean, we've just scratched the surface on the kinds of anecdotal things that are really useful. But you know, got to fit them in an interview. So, um, moving on from that, um, let's take this journey a little bit further and fast forward to when you've completed the year of paralegaling and you decide to move back to Toronto. Um, you said that you didn't really have any job. You and your husband both didn't have work. So I guess if you don't mind getting into a little bit, you talked about how networking was so integral to you getting employment, getting articling here. Um, what about what what about this journey back to Toronto? And you mentioned the lack of resources or help led you to starting your organization, NCA Network. Yeah. Uh- and all really important aspects to highlight. I, when I was wrapping up my uh, paralegal position, I had a few. The thing about the NCA exams is it's very overwhelming to have. Mm-hmm. Se- I had seven. Right. So, you know, you get the uh, you get your assessment, and then you're told, okay, you have seven. Some some students have more. Some students have less. Um, but for me, I had seven exams and that's a lot. That's a lot on top of work, on top of life. Uh, my, you know, I had kind of uh, determined pretty right away after living in London that I wanted to move back to Toronto. But more, most importantly was having a good job and having a good um, like you know, source of income and uh, being more secure. Mm-hmm. So that's why I did apply for both in both places. I just kind of thought we'll see how things work out. But overall, I really wanted to move back to Toronto. I was homesick and I really didn't want to live in I didn't see London being the, uh, you know, a, a permanent place um, for me yeah. to live. Mm-hmm. And you you maybe echo the same sentiments. Yeah, and yeah I think I do. Yeah. So yeah, I was I was really I uh, I for me I said I'm going to do the NCA exams uh, no matter what. Even if I had training contract position and I was training to be a lawyer there, I just thought I'm coming back to Toronto eventually, so I need to get these done. Mm-hmm. So I had seven exams that I was required to write, and I just chipped away at them. Um, but it was really hard for me because I didn't really know what the exams were about. I didn't really understand uh, how it worked, um, mm-hmm. where 
that I, it was my own research to, that I determined I could actually write them in London. I did have two of the UBC online courses that um, qualified for the exams. Um, and then I had to find an invigilator which is a person to watch you write that exam if yeah. I wanted to write it in London. Um, I didn't have the opportunity to fly back to Toronto, for example, and um, they offered, obviously. If it was in Canada, they, they told you where to go, where to write it. But if you were abroad, you had to figure it out yourself. Yeah. And I spent so much months of my time trying to find an invigilator. I didn't know how to, how to go about it. I called every, I called the universities here asking if they knew. I called universities in London, like nobody would get back to me. I Googled everything and I found one place. It's called like M2M. And I was so happy that I finally like fixed this puzzle. And I just thought, there must be other students that have this the same issues that I'm having. And there must be a way to disseminate this information other than me just kind of, uh, you know, every, I felt as though every month or every, every milestone I had to uh, hit was, uh, was always so much of my effort to figure it out. So I actually found out too late that I could have had one of the exams waived because I did company law in law school mm -hmm. and that would have counted towards one of my NCA exams, but I hadn't had that information. And when I found that out, it was literally about two days before I was writing the actual exam. Oh, and I just thought, oh, I already studied. I'm going to write this exam. I want to get my certificate already. But had I known from the beginning, I could have waived this exam, I would have done it. And I would have been very happy to have done that. So mm -hmm. there's just so many little things that I just feel like, uh, like accumulated into my experience. And I was, you know, maybe it would have been a different experience if I was in Toronto, for example, because there is a little bit more resources because it is geared towards students for when they return to Canada or, or while they're here qualifying. But mm -hmm. having done pretty much most of the exams abroad, I just thought there must be you know, other students who have these issues and have these questions. And at the time, it was really just a Facebook group, uh, which I kind of used. Um, and it was very fragmented, I guess you could say. And mm -hmm. my experience was you know, there should be a bit more of a network, a bit more of ask this person who may know this person or kind of somebody to lean on, even someone to complain to. Like, I would have loved somebody to just be like, this is, this is stressful. This is annoying. Mm. And them to have just been like, yes, I agree. This is hard. And just, just having that is, was, was, was really all I wanted as well. Mm. I didn't have that. So I powered through, I did, I did finish the exams. Uh, and it was just such a relief to have that experience over with. Mm. Um, and I, I, uh, and yeah, and I'm always happy to kind of share that uh, story because now things things seem to be much more cohesive. There seems to be a lot more information about the exams, uh, the process, um, and you know there there appears to be more students writing them abroad than there used to be yeah uh, so that there seems to be more streamlined with that and i think that's fantastic i think that's how it should be i mean you should have the opportunity to write them uh where you are because that's kind of the purpose of these exams is you write them um to qualify your degree in canada and not everybody's able to come here first they right. want to work in their own where they are uh get these because you don't know when you're going to have these exams done as well i kind of chipped away at them where i did one exam or two exams um at a time 
did two at a time. Mm-hmm. But now this is the problem. And I think it's good to have students who are writing the exams now in our group because I, I can't recall specific questions during exams. Mm. It was so long ago for me. So I, um, I, in our team, we always have students who are writing the exams who are much more familiar with it to actually answer those specific questions. Great. And do you uh, just, uh, this question just popped in my head. Do you have um, individuals look into your organization or contact you who haven't gone abroad yet for law? Or is it mostly individuals who co- have come back or who are from wherever in the world looking to get their NCA accreditation? Well, it's a good question. I, I do have students reach out to me about um, debating w- whether going to law school abroad is the right decision for them. Uh-huh. Very um I mean, it's very personal. Yeah. I also have students asking me who are looking at the NCA exams, um, you know, which exams they should write or how they should do it. Also very personal, yeah, that's, um, yes. you know, yeah. whether they should do the LPP program, uh, which is the um, program at Ryerson. Um, it's or an experiential training, which is articling. Um, and both of them qualify you to become a lawyer. It's required that you do you know, either or mm-hmm. also very personal questions. So yes, I mean, uh, our, our group NC network is a, is a young professional networking group for students who are qua- who are coming to Canada or who are looking to, uh, qualify their degree in, you know, into a, a what, is required. You have to do the exams and then you get a qualifying certificate. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the group. And we're also, uh, attract alum. So students that have gone through the NCA process who are lawyers now, mm-hmm. and, um, the purpose is to network. So yes, of course, if you're going abroad, um, you know, follow us, but we'll become the most useful for when you are at that stage where you're, uh, writing the exams or looking into writing the exams have written the exams and are looking for you know job positions that's more mm-hmm. of the kind of target audience yeah and i actually could see that um i know for I mean, you, you and i share a similar experience in where we went to study and you know how we experienced it all and i think even like you mentioned if you're thinking about going abroad or if you are going abroad or <laughs> if you are abroad and you're currently studying law in I don't, even in the UK, even in India or Pakistan, it's always worth a follow, right? Follow the social media and I'll post links to that because it's also good to get a flavor for what you're in for. Um, and I know that your your team does a really good IG, um, really good job at creating content and you have interviews with, with um, key stakeholders in the accreditation process, but also sort of reminders that exams, registration's coming up. So like for me, I didn't really look into the NCA process until after I graduated. Um, but it's also good, it's always good, I think, to have half an eye on what's ahead. And following social media is super easy. You can look at the NCA network stories and sort of just get a flavor for what's to come. Definitely. Um, that is, you know, it's social media has come such a long way. And mm-hmm. Uh, the information that is more at your fingertips uh, is so helpful, especially when we're discussing networking and getting that information. I honestly didn't really think about the NCA process either until I pretty much graduated. Uh, I don't think it really matters what time you think you start thinking about it. I think what, what's important is to kind of have an idea as to what you want an overall 
kind of approach as to what you want to out of your career right you know, are you going to stay in one place are you going to another because that kind of dictates what process you end up doing um and i guess it's those five-year goals are crazy no one knows what they're doing in five years <laughs> but having an, a general sense is what you're going to do in the next six six to 12 months is helpful because I knew I wanted to go back to Toronto. I, I knew, you know, I'm with this, I'm with this person who is British who needs to have a permanent residency. Yeah. I, I had to understand those requirements and that kind of, you know, that, that shaped what I would be doing for the next year or so. And mm-hmm. honestly, there's no rush. There's no, yeah. A lot of students want to just get it done. And I understand that because I, I definitely, for the NCA process, I was very keen on having these exams over and done with. But I wouldn't say that you need to make a decision very quickly because uh, that means that you'll get X, Y, Z. You know, things are very, you just never know. And it's always best to make a decision based on your personal um, goals. So yeah. I had a lot of my colleagues that, had job offers for, uh, for example, my uh, colleague, I, who also went to school abroad, came back, I know him from high school, we were in the same year of call. And he was so he really wanted to practice estate litigation. And that's the, the area of law that I practice and that I have experience in. And, um, and he was so excited to hear that I was articling with a lawyer who does estate litigation. And he was asking me, you know, how did you um, get that position? I'm so interested in estate litigation. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Most people aren't yeah. that keen in this area of law. It's a very interesting area. I love it. I That's what I practice exclusively. And I just said, you know, I know this person or reach out to this person. And he did. And he uh, he's working right now in estate litigation, but he had an offer of employment at a um, personal injury firm mm-hmm. and they were going to pay him a lot of money. And it was the only offer he had. And he turned it down because he just said, that's not what I want to do. I really want to do estate litigation. I articled in um, kind of a similar area. I didn't enjoy it. And I'm going to hold out. And he did. He held out. He kept hustling and networking and i think it took him another six months but he found the position he was looking for so a lot of times students they just you know you just don't know you just think oh well i have an offer now i should take it because Mm -hmm. the future is so uncertain but if you have faith in yourself that you're going to get there in the end and you can keep hustling and keep networking then sometimes that's the right decision you know you don't have to take every um offer or you know everything that comes your way just because maybe you feel like that's your only um you know opportunity there's so many opportunities and you just have to have faith in yourself that you mm-hmm. that you know you can get there yeah and keeping in mind like you said that it's it's a marathon not a sprint right there's there's no rush take your time and make sure that you're you're making decisions that are best for you now but also in your career goals and and what you feel comfortable with doing that makes sense um, you mentioned, and we'll kind of wrap up soon, Kim. Um, there's a lot of really great nuggets of information here, but um, I was, I'm interested, you mentioned that you're in estate litigation, you love it. And a lot of times I get feedback from listeners and, you know, and I'm in, I work in education. So, and I work with internationally trained lawyers. So even outside of the podcast, a lot of it is um, how do you know 
what area of law interests you because some people go through a whole law degree and they're like i don't know i like not, none of these courses jazzed me like so how how do you figure out what you enjoy is it through that networking and experiential learning that you do either through volunteering or in formalized articling or training contract stuff or how did you find estate litigation or how did estate litigation find you I think that's a really good question because I think it really comes down to whether you want to be a solicitor or a barrister. Mm -hmm. And a lot of students may not uh, appreciate the difference, but in, in the UK, for example, uh, that you actually have to choose a path. Uh, You can't be both uh, in the UK. You have to Mm -hmm. choose whether you want to be a solicitor or barrister. And a lot of students just assume that they'll be a solicitor because being a barrister is extremely, um, it's, a, it's an extremely competitive process and uh, it can be very expensive. But luckily in Canada, uh, we don't have to choose right out of law school whether we want to be a solicitor or barrister. We, can, we have the opportunity and the privilege to be both mm-hmm. and that's great. And then you have to decide whether you essentially are the type of person that wants to advocate, uh, which essentially be a litigator. Do you want to go to court? Do you want to um, do oral advocacy uh, and essentially bring court proceedings? And uh, do you have that type of personality that uh, wants to you know, fight um, and <laughs> you know, send, send threatening emails maybe once in a while, uh, advocate for your client, be a fearless advocate, or Or are you the type of person that prefers to uh, do transactional work and deal more um, with uh, clients that aren't disputing, but come to you because they have, uh, they want some type of contract drawn or they have a real estate closing that's required. Those are very different areas uh, in terms of your personality. So I do litigation. I'm a barrister. I do, um, I don't draft wills, for example, I only um, fight over them, so to speak, or advocate on behalf of my client uh, when they're in a dispute. And that's, for me, I really enjoy litigation. I really enjoy going to court. I love the oral advocacy aspect of it. Uh, And I, for me, that's just really lends well to my personality. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think in terms of deciding what to do. It's, I think the first step is deciding whether you want to actually be a litigator or, uh, you know, overall a barrister, or you want to be a solicitor. And then from there, you can really decide what area you want, you know, whether you want right. to be a commercial litigator, a state litigator, a family lawyer, um, or you want to do real estate transactions, um, commercial transactions, that kind of would you know, drafting wills, estate planning, they're very different because some lawyers fear that going to court and speaking in front of a judge, like it, it just brings fear into their soul. And they just think, I don't want to do that. I don't want that stress. And others uh, kind of like me, that's the best part about being a lawyer is going to court, speaking, uh, convincing a judge, you know, winning, all of that stuff really strikes me. And that's what makes my job really fun. Mm. So that's how I would kind of explain the differences. And I really wish law school did a better job explaining those two very different aspects of being a lawyer, because it really, you have to look at your own personality, I think at that point. Yeah, it's interesting. I I like the, um, I've never heard anybody really bring the barrister and solicitor model sort of take it from the UK and apply it here even though in Canada you're able to practice both um, 
you still do kind of make that choice, don't you? You have this sort of advocacy itch that you need scratched, that you that you want to pursue, that you want to be an advocate, and that would sort of lead you in a barrister's down a barrister's pathway. Or if you're not so inclined and you prefer to do more transactional work, then it's kind of that solicitor model. And we don't think of it really like you know you qualify as a barrister and solicitor, and that's kind of where you park it. But really, it's not. You have to determine still, even though you're not saying it out loud necessarily, you do want to be an advocate and that's kind of following that barrister pathway that that's an interesting way of describing it and a good one i think so it sounds like for people who are struggling to find out what area of law they'd like to do just bringing it back that extra step to determine what kind of a lawyer do you want do you want to be somebody who advocates in court or do you want to be somebody who's involved in more transactional work like real estate and i think that draws on a lot of personality traits and you have to do a lot of kind of introspection and like you say it would be nice if law schools provided that for you. Um, and I'm sure they do in some ways, like this career counseling and things like that, but maybe make it more part of a curriculum would be a good idea so that people actually kind of know how to choose what area of law and what kind of lawyer they want to be. I, I know law school does mooting, and I think mooting, yeah. is, a, mooting is a very barrister uh, quality. So uh, students are more than welcome, and I encourage them to... Yeah moot uh to take a case and argue it and see how that felt like did you enjoy the process mm-hmm. or was it the most stressful thing in your life that you never <laughs> want to do it again you know yeah. like that's that's it i loved mooting i thought it was so fun um and i really enjoyed it and i judge now i act as judge for the um there's the moot that is put on by uh i'm trying to remember now uh, the osgood moot mm-hmm. uh and I, I find it so, I, I, I mean, I find it so great to see these young um, students that are very well-spoken, yeah. um, articulate, and, I, you know, they're the next crop of barristers that are coming up. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and not everybody, some, some don't enjoy it. And I think you have to do what you enjoy to be successful. So, you know, the earlier you can kind of find out what you enjoy, the more likely you'll be successful. But that doesn't mean anything because I, when I was a paralegal in London, I wanted a job and I worked in structured finance. And that's when I said, okay, I don't want to do this. (laughs) I'm not very, I don't like reading a lot of, I don't like documents and paper and putting things together and records. And I prefer the, uh, the litigation aspect of Mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think it's, you know, if you're doing something and it's not quite right, that's good too, because that tells you that maybe you should pivot and look at something in a different area. Yeah, that's right. That's great. And I think that's a great way to end the conversation, Kim. Um, I was going to sort of close by asking if you had any any tips or hints for NCA candidates, but really this whole conversation's been littered with tips and hints, but maybe one, if you could identify one or pick one out that you wish you knew, let's say, um, when you were either in law school abroad or undertaking the accreditation process here, or even looking for work here, what would be one thing you wish you knew um, that you might want to impart to the listeners today? That is a tough question. It is but tough. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I can encapsulate it by saying that everything has a way of working out. And I think that's the hardest part 
of anything, of any career journey is how will this play out? Because no one has a crystal ball and no one can tell you uh, what's right or what's wrong. And a lot of this, the decisions that I highlighted earlier, you know, which, what should I do articling or the LPP, those are very personal decisions mm-hmm. uh, that you have to make. And there's no wrong or right and everything always works out in the end. And you can look back at certain things you did, you know, certain programs you chose, certain places you chose to live. And you can think, oh yeah, that was great. You know, your your program you did at U of T, I'm sure you enjoyed it or you learned a lot about yourself. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and things things always work out in the end. I know it's, sometimes do. it takes a long time for things to fall into place, but it's almost, you just have to kind of know and while it's extremely hard while you're going through it, that, you know, have a little faith and trust in yourself that yeah. you'll, you'll do it. You'll do a good job. You'll succeed. And uh, ultimately, you know, it will work out in the end and you'll look back and say, Oh, I'm so glad I didn't get that job. Or I'm so glad that didn't happen. And at the time it's so devastating when you're rejected and we don't get certain positions, yeah. but then you look back and you're thinking, Oh, whew, I'm so glad I didn't end up working there. Mm-hmm. So you just never know. And you just have to have faith that when one door, what is it? The phrase is when one door closes and a window opens, that's very true. And it's, there's no straight path and don't be jealous of somebody else that gets the, their dream position because you never know uh, what their experience is actually like. Um, And, you know, it just wasn't the right fit for you at the time. Great. Amazing, Kim. And I, I was—I just find myself nodding my head to what you were saying there. And like now, and you're right, all these experiences help to, to train you to start thinking, I got this and um, whatever, you know, as long as you put your best self out there, things will happen for you. And if they're not breaking for you right now, um, just continue to put your head down and, and trust that trust in yourself that things will, will break for you eventually. So that's great, Kim. I, I really appreciate the time I know you know with estate litigation you're beholden to clients and everything and to to carve out an hour for me and for the listeners is is amazing and hopefully we can follow up um, in a few months or in a year or something and and catch up and see how NCA network is doing and how how the law firm is doing and how everything's going yeah definitely thanks so much for having me I really appreciate it and um, you know hope hopefully everybody stays safe and Mm -hmm. we get through this together and who knows maybe the next time we're sharing this new year it will be in person you know let's let's hope that'd be great (laughs) thank you kim thanks anton have a good one And that does it for episode 28 of A Shot of Life. Thank you, Kim, for taking time out of your day to join me um, on the podcast and in sharing your story. Um, I know that I saw myself in a lot of the story that you were telling me with going abroad to the UK as a Canadian citizen and then coming back and, and looking at the NCA process as something that could be quite daunting. And obviously that spearheaded and inspired you to, to form you know, the blog Law for Millennials, but also NCA Network, of which I'm a part of and and obviously recommend everybody who's listening to the podcast to check out. NCA Network is a great follow on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, Twitter. And um, obviously you can give Kim a follow on LinkedIn as well in the uh, link in the bio. Thanks, Kim, again. And until next time, we'll talk again. Mm-hmm.